A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, we are going to talk about excellence, and we have an expert on that. I'm actually a former Delta pilot, among other things, has done a lot of things. We've got with us this morning Captain William T. Thompson. Uh, goes by T. We're going to call him T today. How are you today, T? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Great. So, um, you know, you have, you've, you've got a really great career path. I mean, you know, really your, your whole path all the way through. And instead of me sharing the story, I'd, you know, share, share the story with us of how you've gotten to where you are today. All right. Well, I grew up in South Carolina uh, back in the days of segregation and was one of the first African-American kids to go to what had been an all white high school. And uh, that was an interesting experience, particularly uh, the first day being escorted by federal marshals and highway patrol to school. Uh, but being at Orangeburg High, notwithstanding the uh, turbulence, as we'll say, also opened up doors for me opportunity-wise that I probably would not have had had I gone to the other high school, which was uh, the black high school in town. I ended up going to the Air Force Academy, was the first African-American from South Carolina to go to that prestigious institution. And as a result of that, I became an Air Force pilot um, and went on to become a Delta pilot, as you had mentioned. Now, uh, I also went to law school at night using my GI benefits uh, while I was in the Air, uh, Air Force. And so when I got out of the Air Force and got hired by Delta, uh, I ended up going to Boston to finish my last year of law school. And so I ended up having, in a sense, a dual career, both flying, starting out as an attorney and then becoming uh, an entrepreneur and also working for uh, the governor of the state as commissioner of aviation at that time and uh, have gone on to to do a number of different things uh, around business as well as community things and uh, now these days i've just written a book called the flight to excellence and i'm on the speaking circuit and so that in a nutshell is my background that's it's quite a nutshell and there's probably <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of stories within all of that. You know, uh, so so you know you 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 certainly touch on you know being the first you know the first black kid in in um in the Carolinas was it South Carolina um yes. to you know to to go to that high school and everything and and once you were in did did you did you ever find acceptance once you were in or or was it a fight the whole time? No, um it, it was a fight at the beginning. Very interesting um, experience to be in. In fact, I can remember walking down the corridors and all the white kids jumping out of the way because back in those days, they didn't want the black to rub off on them. And so no one would be close to it. I could sit down at a lunch table that held 24 people and 23 empty seats would be there and myself in, in a crowded lunchroom with no seats where seats were at a premium. There'd be kids uh, standing up eating out of their lunch trays rather than sitting at the table with me. But as time went on, that changed. I can remember specifically the first time it changed. I sat down at the table, uh, had some open seats, but everybody got up because I sat down. And then this girl said, well, I'm going to sit way down here on the end. I won't be that close to him. And then the other uh, 
girlfriend of hers says, okay, I'll sit down with you here too. So it was me and the two girls down on the end. And as time went on, the distance between me and somebody else, you know, shrank. And that was kind of an indication of how slowly but surely things began to change. It got down to the point where there were only like a couple seats, you know, between me and everybody else. So progress, if you use that word. Yeah, progress. Progress is right. What, what years was this? When was this going? I, I started school in 1965, high school. I graduated in 69, which was the year I went to the academy as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and, and you got accepted into the academy and, and, you know, you had, you had a lot working against you and yet you, you had a, you had a personal drive. I mean, you didn't let things stop you. You could have probably given up a, you know, um, a lot of times during the way. What, what drove you? Uh, having a good family foundation. My parents were teenage parents. They were 16 and 19 when they got married. I came along about a year or so later. My dad got drafted into the Korean War. So for the first two years of my life, my dad wasn't around. I didn't know that. Uh, My mom used to point to his picture, which was a picture of him in his uniform, and tell me that that was my dad. And interestingly enough, when he came back from Korea, um, I, I, I reacted negatively toward him. And he said, I'm your dad. And I would say, no, that's my dad pointing to the picture because the picture was in uniform. Now he was in civilian clothes, yeah. so he didn't look the same. Yeah. But uh, they both went to college. Uh, they both got master's degrees. My dad got two masters. They were school teachers. And having that good, solid foundation of uh, parents who valued education, number one, and number two, had uh, over overcome what I would consider looking back at their careers, you know, a tough start. But I don't know if they looked at it that way. But, you know, two teenage, teenage kids getting married in the Deep South doing segregation and yet to, uh, to you know, again, become very educated school teachers. I got two younger sisters. One's a Ph.D. department chair at a major university. The baby kid is Ivy League MBA. And, you know, I, I look back at that and uh, I got to say, wow, my parents did a hell of a job, you know. Yeah. You know what? Um, I, I don't know we, if we give our p- parents enough credits from time to time on, on these kind of things. I mean, we are reflections of them and our value system and everything. That's that's what we grew up with. And so um, so into the Air Force you went. Did you consider other schools or, or were you really thinking Air Force? Did you want to fly at that point? No, um, I was considering the military because Vietnam was going on, <clears throat> excuse me, during those days, hot and heavy. I had uh, friends that were being drafted into the service right out of high school. And um, I figured I was going to have to go as well. Yeah. And so I knew enough to know that if I did go in the service, I wanted to be an officer as opposed to an enlisted man. My dad had a brother, a younger brother who had gone to college and had gotten through an ROTC program. And so he was an officer in the army. He got out as a captain in the army. And so uh, I figured, okay, if I got to go to Vietnam, I want to go as an officer. And then the more I started thinking about it, the more I started thinking, I didn't want to be crawling around in the jungles (laughs) and I didn't want to be on a boat for six months at a time. And so that's why the air force kind of became my focus. Interestingly enough, I had appointments to two service academies, both the Air Force Academy and the Coast Guard Academy. Didn't even know that the Coast Guard had an academy back in those days. Yeah. But it's one of the five service academies, along with Army, Navy, Air Force, of course, Coast Guard, and then there's a Merchant Marine Academy as well. 
And so um, that was my plan to, to go in as an officer and to, to try to be in the best environment that I could be in at the time, which is why the Air Force became the focus. And so you graduate and you go into the Air Force. How many, how many years did you have to serve? How many years did you end up serving? Uh, four years at the academy, which, of course, is military service, but also school. Mm-hmm. And then on active duty after that, seven years. So what were you flying? I was flying T-37s and T-38s, which were both trainers, uh, and the two airplanes that the Air Force used in their instructor uh, correction in their training program. And so um, I was one of two out of my class that were selected to immediately go to instructor pilot school and come back and then teach, which was an oddity because most of the instructors had gone out and flown in the Air Force some other type of airplane before coming back to being an instructor. Yeah. They, yeah. I, I, I didn't want to do that, by the way. Uh, I wanted to go off and fly a fighter, and uh, I was good enough in my class to be able to get a fighter because you got ranked based on your class standing, and I was in the top 10%. But um, the training command got to pick its pilots first, and they generally pick pilots who were toward the top of the class to go on and, sure. and be instructor pilots right out of pilot training. You know, um, when you look back at it, do you still wish you had been a fighter pilot or, or did that path, you know, move you in a, maybe a different direction and, and help you out? Well, that's an excellent question. And yes, being, uh, having been chosen as an instructor pilot actually ended up working to my advantage for two reasons. Number one, by the time uh, this was all going on, the war had ended. And there were an excess of pilots in the Air Force now. Mm-hmm. And being an instructor pilot uh, gave me an opportunity to get more flying time than I would have if I had been a fighter pilot. Because fighter pilots weren't getting flying time much anymore, about five hours a month, for example. Yeah. And I was getting uh, 30, 35 hours a month as an instructor pilot, which down the line gave me much more um, or many more hours in terms of being competitive for an airline career. The second thing is I got based out in Sacramento, California, and uh, there was a a law school there, the University of the Pacific's law school there, McGeorge School of Law. They had a night program, which enabled me to go to law school at night. And had I been in a fighter environment, I would not have had that opportunity as well. So both my tracks, both with the airline and, you know, law and, um, and business ended up being better opportunities for me to pursue because of the fact that I had been picked as an instructor. So, you know, when you went to law school, had you considered that you might continue flying pretty much for the rest of your career or, or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my, my number one goal was to get that airline job. Yeah. But I thought, well, I've got this pot of um, GI bill money. Yeah. I don't want it to go to, to waste. And I'd like to have a backup in case I have a medical problem, you know, problem with my eyes or something like that. I figured being a lawyer would uh, at least give me the opportunity to have a career where I could be successful. Uh, number two, uh, I really wanted to, to get an MBA and, and have that as a business background because I had an interest in business as an entrepreneur. Sure. But because my, engine, my degree at the academy was an engineering degree, I would have had to go for a year to take undergraduate business courses like statistics and economics and that sort of thing 
in the MBA program. And so what normally would have been a two-year program for most people going to get an MBA for me would have been a three-year program, although I have been accepted because I didn't have the undergraduate foundation that was mm-hmm. necessary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm going to go for three years, why go for three years and get a master's when I can go, you know, one extra year and have a JD, a doctorate, <laughs> and, uh, and have more flexibility as a lawyer. I, I read an article at the time, I think, in Fortune and Forbes that uh, 30% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies had law degrees. Yeah. And so I thought, okay. Well, that'll give me a, a lot of options having a law degree. And, uh, what, what great thinking. But I have to, I, so I chuckled a little bit there because it's not often you hear of law being the backup plan. You right, know, you know right. more often than not, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go to law school. I better have a backup plan if, if I can't get into law school. So I, what a great story. Um, you know, your, your book of light to excellence, we'll, we'll spend some time in that and, and some of those theories in a few minutes, but I, I want to keep exploring with you is really about excellence and providing excellence and service and a lot of things. And, and a lot of that, I know you, you learned some of it's part of your nature and a lot of it you learned through your experience with Delta airlines. You know, Delta has been a airline of choice for my family. And I, I mean, I, I grew up flying Delta and um, I got one arm of my family are all pilots and, and have been in, you know, and one of them was a Delta pilot for many, many years, actually just retired right. himself a few years ago. So I have a real affinity. And, and so I, I love having the opportunity to talk with anybody who's, who's been at Delta because I think they've done some amazing things in a lot of realms, not just to customer service, but how they treat their employees, et cetera. So I want to spend a little time exploring that with you. And so, so you went into, you, you went into Delta. Where, where do you start when you come in? I mean, you, you know, you're a well-trained pilot, but you're, you're going to be getting on equipment you've never flown before. So, so where, where do you start uh, your career as a pilot in an airline like that? Well, I'm, I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to take a step back first, though. Yeah. I was uh, in Northern California, in Sacramento, as I mentioned, and I wanted to stay out there because I really enjoyed Northern California. Uh, go up to Lake Tahoe and have a good time, go down to the wine country, San Francisco on the weekends. And I wanted to get hired by United or American Continental, somebody that had a base out in in Northern California. Delta did not have one. Nope. Having grown up in the South, I didn't want to go back South <laughs> at the time. I get that, yeah. Uh, because I was enjoying California. But as I did the investigation, which in those days meant going to a library and digging through magazines and books and that sort of thing because there was no Internet, uh, it became readily apparent that Delta was the class airline in the business. They had had, at the time that I got hired, 35 consecutive years of profit, and there was no airline that came close. And they had this thing called the Delta family, which was their culture in terms of how they treated their employees. And so when I looked at um, all of the options, I said, well, I can live any place because pilots often commute to other cities that they work out of. And I said, it's, it's better for me to be with Delta from a long-term standpoint of view than to be with one of these other carriers. I think American had pilots furloughed, United had pilots furloughed at the time. Um, and so that was the situation that currently existed. Um, you, you, don't, you don't pick an airline, an airline picks you. Yeah. And so you, you sent out your applications and I was um, fortunate to to get an interview with Delta at a time when they were not hiring pilots. So I took the initiative, uh, talking about excellence, 
And, and once again, during my investigation, I d- discovered that the vice president for flight operations was a former Air Force guy that had spent about six or seven years in before he got out and went with Delta. And so we had that in common. And then the senior vice president of flight operations was an ex-Navy fighter pilot who was also a lawyer. He had come to Delta as their um, vice president of legal. And so I wrote both those guys letters telling them about my situation, you know, currently going to law school at night, but uh, flying in the Air Force and how I had done my investigation, found that Delta was, you know, the top airline and really the only airline I wanted to fly for, even though I was out in Northern California. And that if their situation changed in the future and they were hiring pilots, you know, hopefully they would keep my uh, application on file. Never did get a response from either of them from in a letter, you know, return letter, so to speak. But I did get a call from the secretary that said, we're going to invite you down to Atlanta for an interview, but we're not hiring any pilots right now. So I understand that. But we're doing some selective interviewing. And will you come to Atlanta to um, to sit down and talk with us? And they sent me a ticket out and I flew from San Francisco down to Atlanta and got an interview. And I figured if I could get an interview, I was going to get the job. And then um, about two months later, they started hiring, August of 1980, and I was one of the pilots called to uh, be interviewed. That's an excellent, excellent story. Um, so we're, we're up to our first break. Um, so let's, we'll continue the story when we come back. It's, it's such a great story. Um, everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit MexicuteGroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E Group.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. And we're back with Captain T. Thompson T., 
Um, you know, again, great story. So here you are, 1980. You 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 got the interview. You you got in. I mean, they 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 offered you the job, and and you get started, and that's when you really start learning about Delta from the inside. Tell me tell me a little bit about that. So t- tell me about your path, and I, I want to hear more about the the Delta family concept, the culture that they had there. Yeah, it started out uh, on our first day of training. Frank Rocks, the guy who I mentioned before, the senior vice president of flight operations, came to talk to our new class. And he said, some of you guys may have interviewed with American and United, other carriers, and you may have noticed that the corporate environment looks a little more plush than it does here at Delta. He said, we make more money than they do, but we give it to you. We don't put it in furniture and environment. And so we pay our folks the highest for the highest paid in the industry across the board. It's because you are a part of the Delta family. And that was the beginning of my introduction to Delta's culture. Uh, and it evidenced itself in so many ways during my career. I'll give you one uh, great example. The pilots were the only union group at Delta. The flight attendants, the mechanics, all the other major employee groups were non-union. And one of the ways Delta kept the unions away, so to speak, was that they paid their employees higher, higher rates than anybody else. And so the question was always, what's a union going to do for you, right? But the pilots have been unionized almost since the company started. And uh, the senior officials at the uh, company would say, we're glad that the pilots are union. We have no problem with that. In fact, uh, what would normally happen is whatever the pilots negotiated, broadly, they would give more or less to the rest of the employees. But here's what um, I think evidence Delta's culture. Because we had a contract, our pay scales were set. So if Delta had a great year and would give uh, employee bonuses, they didn't have to give us anything because we had a contract. And so the rest of the employees would get bonuses, but guess what? The pilots would get bonuses as well because uh, Dave Garrett, who was the president at, at uh, Delta when I got hired, said, we're all in this together. We're all one big Delta family. And uh, so he made a conscious decision to give us bonuses when we didn't, have, we didn't have to receive any because we had a negotiated contract. And I think that speaks volumes to Delta's culture that we were all in this together as a family to provide great service to our customers and to take care of the employees. You say great service to the customers. Um, and that is, that is clearly a, a hallmark of their airline. And, and, you know, I won't claim that people are happy all the time. I mean, let's face it. Travel is a stressful thing for people often. And yet, you know, I have seen so many examples of um, people at Delta bending over backwards, trying to help people out. Uh, wh- what was it that they preached? How did they, how did they teach it? And how did they, um, how did they ensure they had people that were so well aligned to the culture? Because it doesn't just happen by accident. No, it doesn't. And interestingly enough, although I was a union guy, in fact, I was very involved with the union. Uh, I think to a great extent, Uh, not having unions were a great advantage for Delta. So, for example, if the airplane was coming into the gate and the the person whose job it was to park the airplane wasn't there, somebody else would run over and park the airplane. Now, that's a simple uh, thing that you think would not be as big a thing to talk about it, but at other airlines, that couldn't happen. 
because everybody had a specific job, their union required that they did specific things. And so um, other airlines didn't have that flexibility. If the airplane parker wasn't there, the mechanic couldn't park the airplane because that wasn't the mechanic's job. But at Delta, the mechanic or a baggage loader or whoever saw that the airplane needed to be parked would run and grab the the two uh, flashlights and get the airplane parked. And so we're always, you know, helping each other out across the board. And even pilots, even though we were union and we were pilots, you know, we'd, we'd show up at, at, at the gate, and if the gate agent needed help in some way, it wasn't unusual to see a pilot behind the, uh, behind the boarding desk helping the gate agent out to get the, get the uh, passengers boarded on the airplane, that sort of thing. So we all helped each other because there were no defined restrictions other than, of course, you know, our jobs. Obviously, I couldn't do a mechanic's job, but... Mm-hmm. You know, we helped each other in any way that we could ultimately to get the mission accomplished, which was to take care of the passengers and get them safely to where they were going. So did they did they preach that sort of thing about helping each other out or did they find people who had that naturally in them as was a part of the interview process? That's an excellent question. And I think they found people. They hired people that had those natural inclinations because I can remember sitting down with. um Several of my interviewers, the first being just the um, personnel guy at Delta. We're talking easygoing conversation. He's telling me about himself. He grew up in Tennessee. He'd been with Delta for 30 years. We talked about me growing up in Orangeburg because he knew the city. And I'm wondering when the interview is going to start, right? I'm I'm thinking, well, he's just having a nice conversation to break the ice, right, before we get into the interview. And so we're just talking. And I finally asked him, I said, all right, do you want to see my Air Force records on my uh, flight logs? And his response was, T, I know you can fly a jet. He said, you wouldn't be here if you couldn't. Then he leaned forward, looked me in the eyes. He said, I just want to find out what kind of person you are. And then he asked me a question. He said, are you a very religious guy? And I thought, whoa, what's that got to do with anything, right? And I said, well, geez. You know, I thought I'd gone to, to, to church as a kid, but during my years at the academy, my devotion kind of waned, right? So, so I thought, well, how am I going to answer this question? I said, well, I, I am in law school. Act like a lawyer. Be evasive. So I said, well, Lord, I do believe in God. And then he came back and he said, okay, but do you go to church every Sunday? And I thought, oh, wow, now I got a problem. I got an ethical dilemma staring me right in the face. And I didn't go to church every Sunday. And I'm thinking, here I am with Delta in the South. A lot of people in the South go to church every Sunday. Delta's a conservative Southern airline. Geez, I could lie and get away with it because he wouldn't know. But I didn't lie, and I told him the truth. I said, no, I don't, I don't go to church every Sunday. And then he looked forward. He said, well, I'm glad to find that you don't go to church every Sunday because we're an airline. We fly 365. Our pilots have to work on Sunday. He said, and I would never hire somebody and potentially interfere with their strong religious beliefs. And I thought, wow, this guy was setting me up to see if I would lie to get a job. Yeah. And, of course, I didn't, and I got the job. Two months later, I was a Delta pilot. But it, it was that just conversation. You know, what kind of, and he told me, he said, we only hired captains at Delta. 
It's just going to take you a while to get there. And, and I found out later that it had been a test after I was with Delta because they wanted people with integrity, you know, being yeah. captains of their airlines and, and not taking the easy way out, so to speak. And that evidenced itself several times, that sort of thing, during the course of my, uh, my career at Delta. It's, it's amazing. So, you know, one of the things we preach today is the importance of companies really being clear about their core values, hiring for people who are aligned to their core values, and, um, and utilizing behavioral interviewing techniques, and that's what you just described, to determine mm. whether or not somebody has aligned values. And um, it's, it's, inc- it's incredible because we're going back 40 years and Delta was doing this. Right. You know, a good 30 years before we started really talking about this stuff. I mean, we've really only been talking about core values in companies the last 15, 20 years, but this has existed for a while. And the best companies really understood the importance of getting people who were aligned to their culture, not trying to change somebody to align to their culture. Is somebody really naturally a good fit for the organization? So, you know, I, I've often preached when I've done some speaking, one of the questions people say, well, tell me what are some of the behavioral interviewing questions you would ask? And I would share stories about I'd always interview people on Monday morning. And why would I do that? Because what's the first thing you might ask somebody on Monday morning? How was your weekend? Right. And, you know, if I'm sitting with a person, that just sounds like we're warming up. We're having a nice, but for me, the interview has begun. I could learn more from that question than I could from any question testing their resume. And the, the point that you made about this guy is spot on. You know, all too often companies and, and, and people who are in a hiring position spend their precious interview time, their face-to-face time, trying to validate things on the resume. And I've always said, stop wasting your time with that. You know, work from the assumption that the, vez- the resume is true. It's valid. Um, it's, it's there. The, the person's having the interview because they've already met the pre-qualifications. Use your precious interview time to determine who is this person that you're with? Who are they right. at their core? And how do they fit your organization? And at the end of the day, I mean, if your gut tells you something isn't right, don't go any further. But at the end of the day, if you feel like they're a good fit for their organization, if you want to validate the resume at that point, fine. But that good fit means more than sometimes a couple of checkboxes on a resume. Absolutely. And it was, and, and it was used by, we had to go through psychological evaluation. Uh, my sure. term, I'm sure Delta probably didn't use that term, but we uh, met with a psychologist, took all the tests and then sat down. And, um, and this guy's telling me all about myself. And, and I didn't, I guess I wasn't experienced enough at the time to know that he knew all about me because the answers on the tests, right? Yeah. That I had taken. So you take the written test and it is quite uh, extensive. And then you sit down and talk to the psychiatrist and, um, and he's telling me about myself and, you know, my family and this, and that, and we're just having a conversation and I'm sitting there thinking, man, this guy knows all about me. And, and, uh, and he ends up by saying, he says, you know, I have a lot to, to say about who gets tired at Delta. And uh, he says, and I hope you have a wonderful career. I'm going to follow it. And, and in a sense, once again, to your point, they're digging very deep with respect to who this person is. Do they fit the culture at Delta? And, and that was another indication of that. Yeah, it's, it, it is a great story. And so, so now... Um we fast forward a number of years and Delta 
uh, let's say really acquires. I mean, I know they call they called it a merger. I don't really believe there's any such thing as a merger. Usually, there's always always you know one company is acquiring another in some form. So anyway, right. they, they acquire Northwest Airlines. Northwest disappears. I was in Detroit at the time. I st- well, I'm still in Detroit, and Northwest was our primary hub here. I was pretty happy because Northwest was eh, okay. But when when you make an acquisition. You know, when company one company acquires another, there's all kinds of potential for culture clash, and um, you know they had, of course, unions at all different levels within the organization. Um, I knew people that worked there, and there were, you know, I, I heard all the issues and the complaints and the gripes. How did Delta bring them into the fold? Because it really seems like, I mean, you know, maybe there was a year or two of some bumps, but it really seems like they brought them into the fold well. Um, and I'm sure not everybody survived it. That. That usually happens in merger. But what was that like? Right. And, and and what was it like acclimating to these people who maybe were in a different organization that didn't have the culture of, of Delta? Yeah, interesting, because out of training with Delta, I went to Boston, and Boston uh, had been the headquarters for Northeast Airlines, mm-hmm. which Delta had acquired. I was there for the Western uh, acquisition. I was going to say merger, but your point's well taken. I would always uh, jokingly say, okay, what's the surviving company's name and where's the headquarters? It was always Delta and Atlanta, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> based on that, I said, ain't no merger, it's an acquisition. <laughs> and once again, the same with Northwest, right? Yeah. Where's the company's headquarters? What's the name? It's in Atlanta and it's Delta. So Delta acquired all these other airlines. And so I went through that process. Even with Pan Am, we bought a, a significant part of Pan Am back in the day. Yeah. Um, and uh, two, two things, and it goes back to a comment that I made before, um, they got rid of the unions, except for the pilots. The pilots came into our union, and the employees always had the opportunity to vote on whether they wanted to have the union or not, because that's part of the process, and because I think a combination of pay and benefits and um, environment, company culture, the overwhelming majority of the folks that were now Delta folks and had been Delta folks for a while. So you got, uh, they used to call us RD, real Delta. That means we were hired by Delta. But even the Northeast people over a period of time merged into the culture. And then the Western people merged into the culture. And they all had been union and they all had the opportunity to vote for union when there was another acquisition, okay, uh, and but they had basically put that aside as time had gone on and they had merged. And so uh, I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, and I think a, a part of it as well, you know, when we consult on, you know, pre-merger situations, we always say get the, get the culture right first, meaning define what you're, what you're going to have. And I'm sure that as, as part of all these acquisitions, Delta was very clear that they were keeping their culture. And I, and I would also bet that given Delta's reputation at, at all of these different points in time, there were people that were probably happy to come over, happy to have the better benefits, the happy to have. And so acclimating into the culture wasn't hard. And, and there's always going to be a few that aren't going to survive because they don't have that customer service feel or whatever, and they self-select out one way or another. But, um, but you know, today, certainly, they, they are still one of the best-run airlines in the world, if not the best-run, um, you know, at least from my experience. So we are up on our next break. It's, um, it's time for us to, um, to pause for a minute. Everybody stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to actually talk
talk about how you how you execute on um, great and excellent customer service. So stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with with Captain Thompson T. So we were talking about mergers and um, culture before we went to the break. And, um, you know, since then, you know, obviously you flew for a number more years. You, you've, you've now retired, but you wrote the book, The Flight to Excellence. Uh, and, you know, this is really about how to, to, to provide excellence to, I think, customers. And really, to, you could apply this to any aspect of your life, I think. But, um, but let's, you know, let's spend a little bit of time because, l- let's face it, no business exists without its customers whoever they are, whether they're the people who are flying on your airplanes or the people you consult with, in my case, or, you know, the, the person that walks in your store. Um, you know, tell me a little bit about the flight to excellence and, you know, how did that come about? What, what's your thinking in it? And um, I'd love to explore maybe a couple of the teachings within the book. Absolutely. Well, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about Delta and Delta is number one for me. Flying has always been my number one passion, but in my business ventures, I ran uh, a company that had uh, several divisions. Started out as one, just me. When I when I sold it, uh, some years later, I had 150 employees in five states, and so it was a significant uh, part of my daily life as well. And I might mention that I flew for Delta at the same time, but I used a lot of those principles from Delta in my own company, and and in the book evolves from my totality of experiences, both growing up, my parent, parental influences, my time at Delta, and my time running my own business. And I've come to the conclusion that there are four, uh, in fact, we call it the P4 system, four principles that we can use uh, in any organization or in our day-to-day life with respect to focusing on excellence. 
And the four P's are number one, principles. You've got to have the right principles or nothing else matters. And those principles need to be aligned. The second P is people. You want to surround yourself with good people and the right people. And if you're the boss, you want to be good to the people you lead. The third P is a plan. I call it a flight plan for obvious reasons. You got to know where you're going to land before you ever take off. And you got to have a chart, a route to get there. And the fourth P is performance. You got to have a bias for action because you've got to be able to perform. And I think you can use those four P's in any aspect of business or life. In fact, the subtitle of the book, The Flight to Excellence, is Soaring to New Heights in Business and Life. You can use those four P's as a guide uh, on your journey through that process. Outstanding. And so, you know, I, what I love about it is uh, it so aligns with, with, with our thinking too, right? I mean, especially the principles and people. If you don't have the right people, you're, you're going to have a problem. I mean, Jim Collins talked a lot about the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, but also you got to have the right people in the right seats. And I think that's where you get to the perform piece to some degree, but the principles are really, really the key. Well, we use the yes. term core ideology, but it's the same thing. It's, you know, the core values and purpose of the organization. What are you about? Why do you do what you do and who are the right people? And, and I think we sometimes miss that with core values and core values alignment, we always talk about having the right employees, but it also works with customers to some degree. Because when you, when you have customers that are aligned to your core values, or in your case, to your principles, I think it, it builds a better customer relationship as well. No question. No question. And, and I made the statement that they have to be aligned. And, and what do I mean by aligned? And I use this as an example. Principles is a word that's a homonym. And a homonym is a word that spells the same, sounds the same, but can have different reasons, different definitions, excuse me. And so, for example, principles can be your uh, personal conduct, your ethical standard, right? Your principles. Principles are also uh, common laws or fundamental truths, like gravity. Gravity is a, is a principle of a fundamental truth. Doesn't matter what your principles are, if you drop a pencil, it's going to fall to the ground, right? And so you've got these two definition of principles, but if you can get those aligned, then you have the foundation for a culture of excellence. And I use money as a good example, although it applies across the board in every aspect of life. And so, for example, there's certain principles of money. There's the, uh, the power of compounded interest. There's the rule of 72, which is how fast your money will double at a given interest rate. And then there's the fact that the stock market has uh, generally increased on average between 10 and 11% since 1926, notwithstanding the Great Depression, the Great Recession, the ups and downs on average. That's the fact. Now, if your personal principles are uh, spending and consuming, you're not going to be in alignment with the fundamental principles of money. On the other hand, if your principles are relative frugality, saving and investing, then you're going to be in an alignment and you're going to, over time, naturally become a millionaire. And you can use that same concept in relationships. You can use it in health and wellness. There's certain fundamental principles in health and wellness. And look at your personal principles. If you get those aligned, then you're going to be in pretty good shape. You're going to have some money, and you're going to get along with most people. You know? Sure. <laughs> and, and, and so that's what I mean by alignment. Look at your personal principles. Look at the fundamental principles around that particular aspect of life and get them aligned. 
And so that is a synopsis of what I mean by having the right principles and having them aligned. So if a, if, if a, a business is, you know, up and running and struggling with some of this and trying to figure it out, sometimes people don't know who they are. Right. And even organizations right. don't know who they are. What's what's maybe like one of the first or first few steps of discovery? Because there are a lot of, you know, as you said, there are a lot of principles and and maybe money is just not a principle that's that's important to this organization. But maybe relationships are or maybe it's something else or whatever. How does one right. go down that path of discovery, figuring out what principles are important and which ones we need to drive some alignment around? Yeah, I, I don't think this is rocket science. I mean, if if. If you look around, we all, for the most part, know what's right and wrong, okay? The, the issue in most cases is not uh, information. It is focus and execution, all right? Yes. People want to lose weight. Everybody wants to lose weight. There are all kinds of programs. Noom is the latest one that I see on TV these days. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weight, wife, whatever. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. But the reality is we all know fundamentally that if you want to lose weight, uh, basically you just got to eat better and, and, and exercise a little bit, right? It's not yep. rocket science. Yep. Yet there's this multi multi billion dollar uh, you know industry around losing weight because most people need something to kind of anchor onto or process, which takes me back to the book again, which is why I offer those those four P's as a process that uh, helps you align yourself with whatever it is you want to do. You know, my daddy used to tell me, son, uh, success in life is seldom the result of natural gifts and talents. He was a school teacher. He had two master's degrees, yet he would still say it's not even about education or more than average intelligence. It's about a commitment to excellence. He'd say, William, if you do your best, your best, not Chris's best or not John's best, but your best, which is something we all can do, right? We can all do our best. He said, you'll do better than most because most people aren't going to give you their best. And that's the definition of excellence. Most people aren't committed to excellence. And the, that commitment is you doing your best, which is something that everybody can do, which is why excellence becomes a personal choice. You know, that is such a, that is such a powerful point. And I want to emphasize it. We talk a lot about being accountable and what it, what is being accountable. And account, accountability is a choice. You choose to be accountable or you choose not to be accountable. I mean, and right. I think we, we underestimate the power of making that choice and following through. But there's another word that comes to my mind as you're talking, which I think is really key here, and that's discipline. Yes. Um, you know, I, look, I, I have no idea how many business books have been written. It's been it just lots, more than a person can read in a lifetime. And every one of those books has, you know, tricks and processes and things that you can teach and et cetera. But what I've found oftentimes, and, and, and I think about the weight loss that you're talking about is, is it's, you said it, it's not rocket scientist, right? The tools themselves aren't actually hard. What's hard is the discipline. It's, it's sticking right. with it. It's making it happen. You know, you would not be here today if you didn't have some discipline that drove you to make something of yourself. 
And I, I watch people all the time, you know, um, I've, I've seen people throughout my life, you know, point at, at highly successful entrepreneurs and they say, well, I could have done that. And, you know, I can't believe this guy made it there. And look at that guy. He didn't even graduate from high school. And, you know, how does he do that? Discipline. Yes. And, 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 and here's the other. If, if there's one trick, this is what I would put forward. And I'm a disciplined person, but I have the same challenges that everybody else has. What I have come to appreciate um, is that getting started is the toughest part in most cases. It's, That's it's the like, truth. You know, it, it, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to work out. But I, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And then once I start, it's okay. It's great. I don't want to sit down and write a chapter in the, in the book that I'm trying to write because I'd rather look at TV. There's a football game on the night. But if I can turn the TV off and sit down at the desk and start writing, once I start writing, it's okay. I'm into it, right? Yeah. You know? So if you could just get by that resistance of getting started, in most cases, nine times out of ten, from that point on, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you're, I, you're absolutely spot on. And, you know, and, and I don't mean to be um, I, I tough about it, but I, I, some, sometimes I want to tell people, stop whining and get off your butt and do something. Right. You know, you, know, you keep saying, well, I could have done this, I could have done that. Um, well, go ahead, do it. Just do it. And, Just, you know, which, the other, is the fourth, which is the fourth P, performance. That performance. Bias for Just got to do it. So um, our sound blinked a little bit. I think you said bias for yes. action. That's By it. Performance. That's the fourth, fourth P in the P4 system. Performance. Got you got to perform. Got to perform. That, that bias for action. Absolutely. And, and lastly, to reemphasize another one of your points, is it isn't about how much education you have. I, I know somebody in particular who has their PhD and couldn't lead themselves out of a paper bag. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, you know, and yeah. I, I don't mean to knock it. I, I you know, I, I think we all have the opportunity to get educated. But if you don't apply that education. Absolutely. You're 100 percent correct. And again, uh, I, I have been fortunate and I realize that the, the further you get away from it, the more you appreciate it. The fact that I was blessed with having two good parents who were strong influences. I had great relationships with them. Not that I didn't get in trouble, not that I didn't get punished. But they were always there to support me and to make sure that, uh, as best they could, that they were giving me the right path to follow. Yes. And, uh, and, and you know, that, that's not required to go out and be successful, but it certainly helps the process along. No question about it. Well, and, you know, that's, I think that's another great message because, you know, many, many of our listeners, um, you know, we've got people of all walks of life on this. And, look, we can't change how, how our parents led us. Um, and what kind of parents we had as, as kids. And hopefully most of us have had really good parents. I was blessed with really good parents who, who really drove. And my dad was a hardworking guy, grew up. Uh, there's a guy with, with no, no education and um, you know, built a huge organization, worldwide organization. I mean, he had a ton of success. And you know, strong work ethic, you know, we learn from that. But we also can translate that to our children. Um, not to be critical, but I mean, I've watched people, my, my daughter graduated from high school last year. She's now at college, but, but I can think of some of the people at college that um, they were the, you know, we've heard the term helicopter parents or whatever. They do everything for their kids and they, they you know, their kids never learned to, to work hard. And now we're hearing stories from kids in her class that are struggling at college. 
you know, they don't have that support structure anymore. And they, they, you know, their parents didn't benefit them at all by, by yeah. helicoptering in every chance they have and, you know, didn't really teach them. And, and, you know, these kids will hopefully all find some level of success one way or another, but which are the kids that are going to change the world? And I, I think there, there's something to be said about having some level of struggle. There's something to be said about having, you know, parents that push you and drive you to always work your hardest and best. And you know what? I mean, I told my daughter, you're not always going to get A's, but I want you to always try for them, right? Always put your hardest, best effort in. At the end of the day, if you don't get a good grade, but you say, I put my best in, I, I think that that's good. I mean, that's, that's what we need. We need to, to, to get out there and be working our hardest and driving. And great things will happen if you work hard and, and put the time in. I agree with you 100%. My parents were the same way. They, they were school teachers, as I said, and they had expectations that I would do well. But the issue was do your best and everything else will take care of itself. I had... Uh, uh, a course in math once that I was struggling with. My dad was good at math. He would help me out. Um, my grade dropped from a B to a C plus. And the rule in my family was, uh, you know, if I was on a team or some activity and my grades dropped, then the activity went away until I, my grades came back up. Yeah. But in this particular case, my dad knew that I was putting the time and the effort in and um, I was playing basketball at the time. But he didn't tell me I had to come off the team. Because what he wanted was my effort, putting the effort in. And uh, he knew that I was doing that because I would go to him for help. And uh, I thought I had to come off the team, but he never said it. I stayed on the team and uh, kept playing. And as I reflected back on that years later, I realized that he just wanted me to do my best. Yes. And in this particular case, in this particular instance, I was doing my best. And it's benefited you throughout your life. We are, unfortunately, to the end of our time. Uh, you know, this has been such a pleasure to having you on. Um, you know, I want to tell the audience again, the, the book is the, the, the Flight for Excellence. or the Flight, Flight to, to Excellence. Excellence. Flight to Excellence. Thank you. Yes. Um, and uh, where can they get it? Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble uh, online or in the bookstore. Yeah, it's, it's a great read. I, you know, Take, take a chance, go get the book and, and, and check it out. There's great stories and um, great stuff. You know, thank you again for your time. If uh, to the listeners, if any of you want to get a hold of, um, uh, if you, if any of you want to get a hold of T, just contact me through the radio station and I'll, I'll make a connection for you. Check the book out. And, um, you know, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so such a pleasure, such a pleasure. Uh, maybe, maybe we can get you on in, uh, again sometime in the future. Sounds good, Chris. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Well, thanks for being with us. And we will, um, you know, we'll be back next week with another great host. Stay tuned and I will see you soon. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.